Powerful. Powerful. If you would please turn to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. As all you, you all recognize the words to that song, it says, To crown thy good with brotherhood from sea to shining sea. We're not experiencing that today. Um, before I begin the text, if that is going to happen in America, it's going to begin in the church. Through prayer. Through the gospel and through the truth of God's word. And I'm going to begin by reading our verses, Jonah chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. And I'm just in awe of how the Scripture speaks today to our very needs, our very problems, as it always does. It is the eternal Word of God. We look at it in history, how it, uh, how it occurred. When it's a historical account like this. You get an interpretation from that. What did it mean? And then the application is the bridge. How does it apply today? Because God's Word is eternal. It's as applicable today as it was uh, this very day that Jonah climbed on board this ship. Jonah 1, verses 4 through 6. I'll read the text, text first. I've called this, or titled this, A Wake-Up Call. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, And they threw the cargo which was on the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, lain down, and fallen a sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us, so that we will not perish." As we were leaving last week, we learned in verse 3 that Jonah, he had just settled into the ship. He had just boarded, uh, he paid the fare, and we were told that he went down into it. He went to a deck below. We also discussed how this represented just a complete abandonment, abandonment of his ministry. Completely abandoned his call. And Jonah refused to do what God had called him to do, that is, preach repentance to Nineveh. And instead, he laid down and took a nap. As we begin here, there's, there, there's no use mincing words. The Christian church in America today has widely laid down and taken a nap. A long, defiant nap, essentially a hundred years or so. And, I, and I'd like to share a summary uh, before we begin here, of the story of a, of a tale named Rip Van Winkle. You familiar? I found this on Wikipedia. That's where I get all of my theology. No, that is a joke. That is a joke. But the tale goes like this. This is a summary. One autumn day, to escape his wife's nagging, Van Winkle wanders up into the mountains with his dog named Wolf. Hearing his name called out, Rip sees a man wearing antiquated Dutch clothing. He is carrying up a keg to the mountain and requires help. Together they proceed to a hollow in which Rip discovers the source of thunderous noises. 
a group of ornately dressed, silent, bearded men who were playing nine pins. Rip does not ask who they are or how they came to know his name. Instead, he begins to drink some of their Hollands and soon falls asleep. He awakes to discover shocking changes. His musket is rotting and rusty, his beard is a foot long, and his dog is nowhere to be found. Van Winkle returns to his village where he recognizes no one. He discovers that his wife has died and that his close friends have fallen in a war and moved away. Did any of you, when you were younger or now at your age, um, well, you, college age people, do you ever remember a friend or friends who would um, go out and help their friends on a weekend with a keg? And as a result, they woke up the next morning, had no memory, couldn't make sense of what had happened. They finally woke up, they, they looked around and they said, I don't recognize this place. For decades now, folks, the church has been helping the world consume its keg. That's what we have done. And, and Christians enjoyed all the party and the dancing, the foul language, the music, the nudity, the rudeness of celebrities, doctrines of false religion. Church just spiritually passed out. And, and, and some in the church, I, I, I hope a lot, are now attempting to wake up and shake off what happened. Trying to understand what happened and make sense of things. Why has morality changed so much? Why, why do we have fornicators parading half naked in the streets? Why are the police officers being ambushed? Why are innocent people being killed? In our nation, we're, we're caught up in a storm. The turmoil of a very severe storm. And, and, and I'll tell you a, a big reason why. It is because... God's people have been napping. God's people have been napping. We laid down, relaxed, took a nap. And and when Jonah, who was God's prophet, his person on the scene at that time, when he fell asleep, we see that a great storm arises. Great storm arises. Look at me at verse 4. It says, "The The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. And I'd like you to notice something right away. The very reason that the, world, that the Lord hurled this, this storm at this ship, so, so violent that it's going to break apart, it's going to tear apart on the sea, and consume the unbelievers around, uh, that are on the ship, it's, it's because of the disobedience of the prophet Jonah. That's why this storm arose. Disobedience of Jonah. Make no mistake, this is a real ship. This is a real storm. It threatens the very lives of these sailors and is about to take Jonah down with it as well. There's going to be no disparity in this when the ship goes down. It's going to consume them all. And God caused it. God is in control of the weather. God never loses control of the weather. He is sovereign. Uh, We're studying Genesis in the men's group right now on Wednesday evening where we have a short study and then we pray. We invite all the men to join that and the women to join the ladies' study as well. And the youth group to go with Gerald and and, and the the children to sing as we had them here. That's what we do on Wednesday night from 7 to 8. And uh, we study God's Word and then we pray. And uh, 
We're studying how did the world come into existence? How did it happen? We know God made it. Who controls the weather? We know God controls it. Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deeps, He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He's the one who makes lightnings for the rain, who brings forth the winds from His treasuries. God is the one who does it. He's in control of the storms. He's in control of our weather patterns. That, that is also that we, His creatures, can enjoy the blessings of the seasons that God has provided. We enjoy that. Uh, most of the time, the weather is quite stable. It's quite predictable. These sailors knew that. Most of the time, it's quite predictable. They sailed according to the seasons. They knew what the weather typically did. Acts 14, 17, God did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave us rains from the heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying our hearts with food and gladness. The seasons are a good thing. We have a benevolent God who blesses us through the way he has formed his creation. It's predictable most of the time. Revelation 4.11, this is our memory verse two weeks ago with the men. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, because you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. This is all God. God's sovereign hand is the reason why we find in North Dakota and the other farm countries that in July, you'll be able to see corn grow to eight feet tall. The farmers in North Dakota, Iowa, those places, they don't have to worry about a big blizzard in the middle of July. They're blessed. Here we're double blessed. We don't have to worry about blizzards at all. Just a hurricane evacuation now and then. The reason, folks, that I emphasize this so much is that a major theme that we're going to observe repeatedly through this book as we continue is that God is absolutely sovereign. He's in control of all things. Daniel 2.21 tells us he removes kings, he establishes kings. That's timely. Uh, We can be thankful that Proverbs 21 verse 1 reminds us the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. This is the one reason Christians don't get all freaked out. God is at work. We had a devotional in the elder meeting this last Tuesday. And the devotional I brought for the elders was from the first five verses of Habakkuk, the prophet. Just a couple books down from Jonah here. And and Habakkuk, he's just reeling. Why all the violence? Why all the destruction? Why all the corruption, Lord? What in the world is going on? Justice is perverted. God has an answer for him. He says, I'm going to do something wonderful in your day. Amazing. Something you won't even believe. And God does it. It's not always painless. But God is is in control. He is working. He hurls this great wind, causes a great storm, the text tells us, so that the ship is about to break up. And what did we learn a couple weeks ago about the Hebrew language when a word is repeated? Remember, great wind, a great storm. That adds emphasis. The Hebrew language doesn't have modifiers like we say it's very, very, very good. They repeat certain words to emphasize. Uh, this great is the same Hebrew word in both uh, 
In both uh, situations, it means mighty. So we have a mighty wind. We have a powerful storm that is about to break up this ship. God hurled it. God sent it. He hurled it out of nowhere. And these are seasoned sailors. They're not newbies. Uh, they're going to go all the way to Tarshish. It's, it's not going to be a, a, a day cruise, as we spoke about last week. They know the weather patterns. They realize this storm, this is supernatural. They're like, this is not what we experience in this time of year, in this location. Something is going on supernatural. And that's the reason that they came, became so afraid. And they feared God, though they didn't know God. Verse 5 says, Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God. You know, e- e- even the most de- devout atheist becomes very religious when he's about to go down in a storm, doesn't he? Most of the time. But these sailors weren't even atheists. They were pagan idolaters. They believed in God. They didn't know God. And they come from diverse religions. Most of these crews did at that time. A crew would come together from diverse backgrounds and religions. And the language here suggests that each is crying out to his his individual God. Save us! Somebody save us. And even today, whenever people experience a crisis, that's whether it's a broken water pipe or a car accident or anything, what are the first words out of their mouth? Don't say it. You might blaspheme. What are the first words out of their mouth? They call out to God, right? They call out to him. Only after that did they spring into action, run outside, and turn the water valve off, or call 911 for emergency. People cry out to God. And the problem is, for this crew, they don't know who God is. God is Yahweh, the I Am. And they're reaching out, calling to their own God to save them from death and judgment, because everyone calls out to a God. Today in Port St. Lucie, if you were to ask people what they believe in that is going to save them the day they face judgment, from death, from judgment, each will have their own answer. They're not Christians. Each will have their own answer. And they each are going to have a different God to save them. And most will employ some combination of good works. They feel they've you know, either been such a good mother or so nice to their children. You know, God would never judge me. I'm just too good. Or many believe that they're superior advocates of justice. This is really common today. Um, they, they either advocated for the homeless or the marginalized or the un, underprivileged. For gays or lesbians, they, they have done that. They've, they, I'm going to stand for them. They're marginalized. I'm going to stand up for them. So, so they feel they're an advocate of justice, an advocate of free love. The 60s, everybody just has to share love. Um, I've done so many things that are in my mind righteous that I just can't fathom that God would ever judge me. They fabricated an inadequate level of righteousness. A couple of the most common as of late, the environment. I'm a good steward of God's creation. I take care of it. I volunteer to preserve parks. I'm a nature lover. Notice I, I am repeated 
quite a bit in, in these types of things. God can't judge me. I've been a defender of the trees. This is one of the most common. Certainly God owes me. I'm taking care of his creation. God is a debtor. No, that's not grace. It's not an exchange of services. Uh, another one, pets, a puppy, a kitten. I'm a good person. I pet them, I feed them, I clean them. God must really love me. What about my neighbor over there, across the road? Do I love them enough to tell them the truth? Others are great philanthropists. It goes on and on. Uh, generous givers of money. They build hospitals, orphanages. In themselves, not horrible things, many of these. Most of them, decent. Yet people substitute their own self-perceived measure of righteousness. They substitute it in place of the perfect righteousness of Christ. When you do that, it actually makes you wicked. I have substituted something for Christ. In place of Christ. In place of what was done on the cross. Like the men on this ship, everywhere in the world today, somebody's fashioned some kind of God. They think will cause them to escape judgment somehow. But notice these, these gods that these sailors were crying out to. None of them were able to calm the storm. None of these false gods were able, able to save them. None. Zero. Because they're not real. They're not real. So they're forced to act quickly. That's the next phase. Call out to God. Act quickly to save yourself. And, and they're shoveling cargo off the deck. The, world, the word is the same one for hurled. God hurled a storm at them. They hurled their stuff off the deck. All the cargo, the precious cargo. And, and it's interesting how material possessions, when, when you really get in a bind, they don't mean a whole lot, do they? Hurl them away. Just want to be saved. That's all you want. And they threw the cargo in verse 5, which was on the ship, was in the ship, into the sea to lighten it for them. But we learn here just in a few verses that we'll talk about in latter weeks, lightening the load didn't save them. Lightening the load could not save them. The storm is still raging. There is absolutely nothing they can do about the predicament. Nothing. They are powerless in their own situation. And, and sometimes, folks, we're going to have to come to the realization there's nothing that we can do about our predicament. We will perish in our sins eventually. Unless one thing happens. One thing. Unless God himself intervenes in our situation. And here's the crux. God has chosen to intervene through His delegates, through His representatives, through what the New Testament calls ambassadors of reconciliation, right? God has chosen to intervene in that way in this day and age. And this is a shipload. They're, they're human souls. They're about to be a shipwreck. And these men are about to perish in their sins and spend eternity in hell. Eternity in hell. Do we grasp that? And, and is there anyone on board that, that could possibly save them? Anyone present 
that not save them in themselves, but anybody that could help them to be saved. Where is he? Verse 5. But Jonah had gone down into the hold of the ship, lain down and fallen sound asleep. He's in a deep sleep. The storm is raging, he's in a sleep. And this is an indication, you know, of just Jonah's enormous concern for the ship and the crew. No. No, it's not. He didn't care about the hundreds of thousands of eternal souls that were in Nineveh who needed to be told to repent. He surely doesn't care about maybe a few dozen on the boat. Doesn't care. He displays a complete indifference towards those around him who are perishing. They're perishing. He's sleeping. Isn't that horrible? You know, how a person can know God, be secure in his salvation to the point that they don't even care that others around them are perishing. They they don't care that there are those who will die that will be tormented eternally in what Jesus calls a furnace of fire. He assures us uh, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's Matthew 13. And that their worm does not die and the fire is never quenched. Mark 9. In that same context, he calls it an unquenchable fire. You know, I'm saved. I've got my ticket to heaven. Romans 8.1 promises me there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm covered. And, and although this ship that I'm in, this nation I am in, might be going down, I've already got my supernatural life preserver on. I'm good. I'm unsinkable. That's good theology, eternal security. I'm unsinkable. But, but I'm not going to hand a life jacket to anyone else. I'm I'm not going to show anyone where they might be able to find an answer for their problem. I'm not going to point to a life preserver. I'm just going to let them die. Let them die. You know, Christians have swallowed... I think this is a really good reason uh, this happens. We've swallowed the drink of the world, the keg of the world, the false doctrine of the world, which says, and we get it repeated to us over and over and over, folks. It says, a loving God would never send anyone to hell. We are fed that, force-fed it day after day after day in the media, in what we read in the schools. You just have to be good. That's all they say. Of course, Scripture says there is none good, so there's a little problem there. But God is not only loving. He is But Scripture doesn't reveal Him only as loving. God is loving and righteous. God is loving and just. And He's so loving, He extends grace through His Son, Jesus Christ. And yet He's so righteous that He condemns sinners. You've got to have balance. Love and justice. It's not just love. And... uh, this might be guilting you a little bit. Guilting me a little bit, to be honest with you. To which I say, good. Good. It's much better that we be guilted by Scripture and what we see with Jonah and his, his disobedience 
uh, than to be rebuked by an unbeliever. Look at verse 6. So the captain approached Jonah. Great, an unbeliever has to come to you and ask. And he says, how is it that you are sleeping? Well, get up and call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned so that we will not perish. I can already see you're not concerned. Perhaps your God will be concerned. And before this pagan captain seeks out Jonah, you know, things have gotten pretty bad. Got really bad. I, I, think, I thank God that he makes it very clear in Scripture that we don't wait until things get that bad. We don't. We don't. We don't let it get to this point. We don't delay until a situation so dire that they, they come to us. That's another false doctrine. In case you haven't caught it just over the last few verses, Jonah is not upheld as our pattern of obedience. That's not what he's being given for here. He's showing us a pattern of disobedience. And Jesus' instructions are very clear in all four Gospels. Matthew 28, Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations. Mark 16, Go into all the world and preach the Gospel to all creation. Luke 24, I am sending forth the promises of my Father on you. They're going forth on you. John 20. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Finally, the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 1, verse 8. You shall be my witnesses, even to the remotest part of the earth. will be the witnesses. There's no passivity in any of this. No passivity. And it's time for us to wake up, church. Time for us to wake up. The reason there's so much turmoil in America, the reason there's, there's storms of protests, every time we turn around, things, things are happening. We're napping. We're napping. Uh, the reason there are so many people dying unjustly, the reason that officers are being executed We've been a failure to be good leaven. It's the reason there's so many abortions, our willingness to preserve sex within the boundaries of holy matrimony, our own, our own inability to do it. Um, one reason our entertainment media, it's so filthy is our own appetite for it. Our lack of interest in Little House in the Prairie. That was good programming. Decent. Don't see anything like that on TV today. Nothing. We need to, as a church, resist the filth. It is really time to quit consuming the keg of the world. Really time individually for us to stop it. Stop it. And don't drink it. Don't take your daughters and your sons to be part of it. Don't go to those movies. Don't go to those concerts. Don't do it. They're filthy. So many of them. Find something that is pure. It's time for us to wake up. It's time for us to set our minds on the things of Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which with, with which you were of ignorance, participated in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, who's the Holy One that called us? Jesus. Like the Holy One who called you, 
Be holy yourselves also in your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Purity is not an Old Testament exhortation alone. It's not just for the old prophets, for Isaiah and Habakkuk and and all those others. Uh, This is another false doctrine that the, the church has been digesting. Oh, you know, all that purity... All of that being good and resisting sin and everything, that was really in vogue back in the Old Testament with Leviticus. No, no, Peter said, today, the same. Be holy as I am holy. And it's time for us to wake up, church. It's time for us to wake up and recommit ourselves to prayer. A genuine spiritual revival, as Pastor Weiler had in the first hymn, revive us. Revive our hearts. A genuine spiritual revival is a result of two primary things. You look back through history, two primary things. Prayer and the preaching of sound doctrine. Prayer and the preaching of sound doctrine. That, that's what leads to a genuine spiritual revival. And we really haven't seen a, a broad spiritual revival in our country since Charles Finney and D.L. Moody. We have not. Uh, not a genuine revival. That would have been mid and, and latter 1800s. That's the last time we had a broad spiritual revival in America. We had the first, great, the, the Great Awakening, and, and then the second Great Awakening. And we haven't seen that. We've had a couple counterfeits. Satan has put a, a, a couple counterfeits in there to really make, that we're, make us feel like we're still spiritual. America's a real spiritual place, and it involves a lot of uncontrolled displays of emotion, a lot of personal experience, a lot about you. Those have been counterfeits in the 1900s uh, as far as a broad revival. We, we haven't seen one. True revival comes through prayer to God where the Holy Spirit sovereignly strengthens people to preach unashamedly. We preach the biblical doctrines of the gospel of truth. We, be, we preach the doctrines of God's grace Scripture, preach the word, Timothy. And when the word is faithfully preached in spirit and in truth, I think Pastor Weiler mentioned that as well, God may, by His grace, by His grace, He may unleash His Holy Spirit upon mankind, upon America, to where salvations might occur at a very large number. So large that it can't be denied. Salvation's occurring. But it can't happen until the gospel goes out through obedient representatives of Christ. It will not happen until the gospel goes off the lips of Christians. Romans 10.13 promises something. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But Scripture then immediately asks three questions after that. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him on whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they're sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet that bring the good news of good things. There's an order to this. There's not going to be any spiritual revival until we wake up. And there's a question commonly asked. I hear it on the radio. I've been asked it, you know, What would a true nationwide, a genuine spiritual revival look like in America? 
What might that look like? And, and my, my response to that, in fact, I, I got an, a new message I need to read on, from Jonathan Edwards on the true movement of the Holy Spirit. I didn't get time to read it this week. But th- this gets tossed around a lot. What would it look like if America was genuinely revived spiritually? I'd suggest that it would look a whole lot like an individual Christian's spiritual regeneration, except on a mass scale. We'd see churches filled once again with rejoicing Christians. You know, newly born again Christians are happy people. Do you remember? Happy. Joyful. Churches would experience, because of this, great singing, joyful praises, revering Christ's holy name. It'd be augmented worship, and people would participate in it. This is not an indictment on our church. I think we're doing a great job with worship through the Holy Spirit. I sit in the front, I hear everybody's voices ring forward. I don't know what it's like for you all back there, but it's been amazing, your singing. The problem is there's been... been a big movement of churches established on passivity. That they actually don't come to worship, they come to be spectators. And they watch worship. Or they listen to worship. Passively. That, that's, that doesn't represent, no matter how many people are there, that doesn't represent a spirit-filled church. To be a spectator in worship. Um, Christians will be moved to participate in heartfelt worship through voices praising God, through reciting doctrines, truth, doctrines, not emotion. As when an individual is saved, the Spirit indwelling them manifests a sincere distaste for sin. You know, we no longer excuse it. We don't like it. We struggle with it. We battle against it. We don't like it. We don't give in to it. We combat it. And we long for holiness. Be holy as I am holy. We want to be holy. We see ourselves always falling short because Christ is the only one who is perfectly holy. But we long to be holy. America would stop drinking from... Christians anyhow in America would stop drinking from the keg so much. And and we'll know that there's a national revival if our nation's taste in entertainment changes. Therefore, some shows will be canceled because they're not profitable, and possibly certain entertainers would retire. That would be a good thing, certain ones. There will be a surge in Christian service. That happens when an individual becomes a Christian. Broadly, we'd see a huge surge in Christian service as Christians increasingly are concerned about others in the church, less about ourselves. Our time will be greatly invested in spiritual endeavors, uh, various endeavors of all kinds. Our time will be less invested in futile worldliness. There will be a love for other Christians. There are many other things we would observe nationally if there comes a revival. This would possibly be my favorite right here. This would possibly be my favorite. They're all good. I would anticipate that if there comes a genuine spiritual revival in America, that we would see the name, the holy name of Jesus Christ, raised up in the public square. Praised in the public square, in all places. You would hear 
entertainers and politicians and people in the workplace, business people, business owners, referring to the name of Jesus Christ as Savior without being shamed about it. You see, so many people praising the name of Jesus, it wouldn't be able to be stifled. Uh, It'd be much less of this generic God. You know, God bless you. That can mean anything. The way that it's used in a lot of different times. Doesn't mean we're always not meaning anything when we say it. But it's very easy to get on awards show or stand behind a pulpit or stand in an acceptance speech and say, God bless you and God bless America. Who is God? Where is Jesus Christ in all of this? Because the Holy Spirit has come in order to bring glory to the name of Jesus Christ. We need to know who we're talking about. We would see that. There'd be much specificity of God who came to live in the flesh as a man. We'd see people express love towards one another regardless of skin color. They would love their fellow man. Because God created us in His image, all life would be valued. We would see that in a revival. For that reason, there'd be a decrease in inflammatory language, bigotry, and crime. People would obey the law. As as a result of that, Christians would be given the liberty to continue obeying their personal conscience as far as it comes to religion. Without the threat of lawsuits, without the threat of losing your business, because you don't want to participate in something that you see as sin. People would obey the law. They'd leave others alone. And there'd be peace. Relative peace. At that point, we would know that there's been a revival. Because it would be obvious to everyone, after this storm that we've been seeing for so many years, decades really, you look at it, if we really saw this, it would be obvious to everyone that Jesus Christ himself stood up and he calmed the storm. Jesus is the only one who's going to calm this storm. And it's only going to come through the gospel. And if you haven't noticed yet in our book, there are a number of reflections of Jesus in the book of Jonah. A number of them. Boat. Storm. People crying out. A sleeping prophet. Jesus even compares himself to Jonah in the New Testament, just as Jesus was three days, three nights in the belly of the fish. I'll be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, right? Even Jesus himself sees his reflection in Jonah. He's given as a type. We call that in the Old Testament a type of Christ. Uh, But Jonah fell way short. He was just a man. Even if he had woken up on his own, still, he could only tell the sailors about who God is. And that's what we'll discuss in our next passage next week. We can only tell, as man, we can only tell people who God is, who Yahweh is in Jonah's situation, who Jesus is in ours. And and we can tell him that God controls the weather, God can calm the storm, just as Jonah did. Jesus stands up out of the boat and calms the storm. What does that make Jesus? God. That's who he is. He is God incarnate. And if you have never understood that, you've never seen that, you need to realize this is the reason Acts 4.12 says there is salvation in no one else. 
for there's no other name under heaven that has been given among men for which we must be saved. There's no other name. Only Jesus is God. Buddha can't save you. He can't do it. He was just a man. Islam cannot save you. It is a false religion. It does not portray Jesus as he is. All the other religions besides biblical Christianity cannot save you. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It's only one way, and it is through Christ, because he is the only one who was God, who became man, who lived a perfect sinless life, and willingly gave that life up to die in place of you, to take your sins in his body on the cross so that we could die to sin and live for righteousness. For by his wounds we are healed. He's the only one who rose from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God. I realize this all isn't very politically correct to say, but it is the gospel truth, folks. That is the gospel truth. And, and, and I'm not going to permit my family, my friends, my neighbors, to perish, at least without telling them. If they perish, it's on them. They have their sins they have to deal with and they have to remedy somehow. Now there's only one remedy. That's on them. But they're not going to perish because I refuse to wake up. I'm going to wake up. Folks, we need to pray. We need to wake up. We need to realize that we've laid down. And we need to be kind, compassionate, and truthful to our neighbors. There is no other way. There's no other way, folks. No political party or no candidate is going to save you or the people around us. It is only through Jesus Christ and the gospel. Let's pray.